Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to be uh, starting the show again on uh, this Friday. Love to finish off the Friday talking politics. Nice looking weather here in Kamloops. I'm not sure the weather is in Victoria, but pleasure to welcome the program. Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. We're waiting to connect with Shannon Waters. We'll bring in her as soon as we can. But uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, so why don't we start off with this LNG stuff? It's a, it's a little messy, but uh, uh, a lot of shenanigans in the legislature this week. Uh, Andrew Weaver calling division on an LNG vote, and then promptly he and the Greens bolted the room. Uh, this led to a back and forth, and then uh, uh, an interesting argument developed over sort of president versus, part of versus partisanship with the, uh, with the uh, committee stage and, and the liberal uh, speaker residing over it, choosing to go with the opposition uh, over the NDP. Uh, which then began a little firestorm after the fact. So, uh, Keith, to you, um, what's more, what's more uh, at stake here? Should the, should she have gone with the president of the situation, or was she right in making the call that she made? No, she was totally wrong. Uh, if you follow convention, uh, which is basically the rule book for the legislature, uh, the committee chair, and this, so the, the LNG bill, um, which is you know paving the way to create the LNG project in Kinemat, uh, was in the committee stage of the House, which is a clause-by-clause debate. There was an amendment moved by the B.C. Liberals. It was debated. It went to a vote. The Greens called division on that, which is a, meant it was a standing recorded vote. And then the Greens oddly left the chamber. As Mike DeYoung said, when the going gets tough, the Greens get lost. Um, and it went to a vote. It was tied. And the chair of the committee, w- which happened to be a B.C. Liberal, um, voted with the B.C. Liberals, uh, with the opposition. And that's not supposed to happen. She's supposed to vote for the government. Uh, so the amendment passed. It was sort of inconsequential. It didn't really affect the material um, aspects of the bill. But it was, a, it was a breach of the of the convention in the House. And then yesterday we had the other spectacle of the, the bill passing third reading. So it's ready to be proclaimed into law. And the, Liber- and the Greens held a news conference, or a, a, an availability, a scrum in, in the, so said the library the legislature, and passionately denounced the government and the, and the Liberals for passing this bill, saying it was the worst thing in the history of British Columbia, basically. And when I asked them, okay, so if you feel so badly about it, are you going to defeat the government, uh, force an election, and fight that election on this issue? And the Greens said, no, we're not going to do that. So it, it, to me, that just spoke volumes about, first of all, the Liberals' um, willingness to break the rules of the House, which can come back to bite them big time. And secondly, that the Greens, this is the number one issue that they care the most about, and yet they're not willing to defeat the NDP. And that tells me if the NDP wants to hang around in government until the fall of 2021, which is the next scheduled election, they're going to hang around in government until the fall of 2021. The Greens are not going to do anything to withdraw their support from the NDP. Yeah, and we'll have to see what the electorate has to say about that. Uh, Vaughn, back to the B.C. Liberals. I mean, you could make the argument this is a one-off and uh, partisan politics, but I do recall prior to the Nanaimo by-election, uh, when the Liberals were looking at capturing that seat, I heard directly from Liberal MLAs, oh, listen, we win with the numbers game. Uh, we've really got them in the committee stage because we can overrule them and make amendments willy-nilly. So it seems like there was some thought put into this prior to this particular situation. 
Yeah, I mean, the amendment that the liberals moved keeps right. It doesn't fundamentally change the bill, but it does embarrass the government a bit because it requires them to release more details about future LNG agreements than they were obliged to do. So that's the issue. Uh, of course, in order to amend a piece of legislation, you have to put it in the order paper for the legislature ahead of time. So both all three parties knew this was coming because it was right there in front of us. Um, the... The rules about breaking ties in the legislature are quite clear. And ironically, just as just the next morning in the UK Parliament, John Burko, the speaker there, very outspoken, broke the first tie in the UK Parliament in 26 years, and he went with the nose. And he said, that's the precedent, that's the rule. The chair doesn't use his or her vote to create a majority where none existed. The rules of the B.C. House are really clear. When breaking a tie on an amendment, the chair votes against the amendment. The chair votes to leave the bill the way it was. Well, Joan Isaacs, the Liberal, did exactly the opposite. She said she was voting her conscience. I have searched high and low in parliamentary precedent, Shane, and there is no precedent for someone exercising their, their conscience on this for a very good reason, because it would turn the chair into a partisan outlet. And as, I, as Keith says, this could come back to haunt the Liberals, because there may be other ties. Mm. And a new Democrat may be in the chair. Daryl Plekis may be in the chair because the Speaker presides over the main house, although not over committees. And, you know, they trumpeted their little victory here and, and hooked up a completely bogus reason for doing it. But they set a precedent that may come back to haunt them. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, Shannon, uh, to you, the BC Greens in this, obviously they're adamantly opposed to the LNG. There, there's no doubt there. But they refused, as Keith said a minute ago, to use their muscle in any other situation to get their way. Uh, is it going to cost them at the end of the day if they play games like this without actually showing uh, any bite to their bark? Um, not according to Andrew Weaver. Talking to him yesterday, he was saying that they're hearing from both BC Liberal and BC NDP supporters. People are tearing up their party membership cards. They're getting lots of donations because they're standing on their principles. Um, you know, I think they must have had a very good idea that they likely weren't going to have much of an impact on the LNG bill. They certainly weren't going to be able to stop it on their own. And yet they took the time, they made the speeches, they tried for the Amendments, and then they held this newser in the legislature to talk about, you know, the devastating impact that they believe that the LNG industry is going to have on the province, on the planet, climate change, etc. So they don't seem to think that it's going to have that impact. I'm not sure when you look at the province as a whole, like how many people, say, from northern B.C. who are quite excited about the LNG bill really care about the Greens' objections. Um, but it does seem to be a matter where, you know, they all spoke very passionately yesterday. Sonia First now called the passage of the bill tragic. Adam Olson talked about how, you know, they're disappointed that the bill has passed, but at least he's going to be able to look his kids in the eye and say, you know, I did what I could um, to kind of oppose this legislation. So I kind of wonder why they didn't vote for um, Mike DeYoung's amendment about 
forcing the government to be more transparent than it seemed to want to be about the LNG agreements, uh, agreements to do with LNG projects that come up. Um, but that's the way they decided to go. And now the bill is just awaiting royal assent. Yeah, uh, that wasn't the only LNG development uh, this week. There was a, That was the political side of the story. On the actual industry side, a very interesting situation played out uh, in front of Heisla First Nation uh, when Chevron uh, made a pitch on its LNG project for the Kitimat area announcing it's going to go to an e-drive. So it's going to be all electronically driven. They described it as the Tesla of LNG projects. Uh, this is being billed as a pretty big game changer. Keith? Well, it, uh, it potentially, um, yes, it is a, a big game changer if, it, if they can actually accomplish that. Uh, we asked John Horgan, the Premier, about that, whether there's actually enough energy, uh, electrical energy, to supply such a project. Even do we need more than Site C? Uh, wasn't entirely clear exactly whether or not we do have uh, a, a big supply of uh, that type of electricity. Keep in mind, of course, that the BC government is committed to really ramping up electrification in all aspects of life, quite apart from any LNG project. Uh, the goal is to get you know, a huge amount of electrical cars, but also to electrify your homes and get sort of wean people off natural gas and have incentives uh, to switch to hydroelectric uh, energy. So Site C now suddenly becomes, mu- I think, much more needed than ever envisioned before, uh, particularly with this uh, commitment to, to try to have a, an e-drive LNG uh, project. But uh, it's one thing to make a commitment like that, another thing to deliver. So it's uh, it'll be interesting, but it's not going to, uh, you know, knock the greens off the off their mark here they are opposed to lng whether it's uh, electrical or not because they're opposed to the source of lng which is you know in the ground fracking is as big a problem to them uh, which you know um, uh, sort of fractures the natural gas underground to in order to extract it and they are opposed to it at its source so whether it's electrical or not you're not going to see the green support this yeah with that uh, with that in mind then uh, to you vaughn i mean site c was definitely a lightning rod uh, prior to the election and a little bit afterwards until the NDP said we're going ahead with this. Could we see a scenario where we're going to have to go past Site C now uh, with electrification, with this new LNG plant, where we might look at having to build another one of these things? Uh, well, I don't know as though we'll ever build another hydroelectric dam in British Columbia because there aren't that many very good sites around, but I do think you could see uh, wind, uh, solar, geothermal, and other options being revived fairly soon, particularly in partnership with First Nation, just to address what Keith said, which is electrification. This e-drive thing, though, Shane, has got implications for LNG Canada, and here's why. Uh, When you produce liquefied natural gas from regular natural gas, you have to compress it and lower the temperature to 169 degrees below zero. To get there, you need a lot of energy. In a direct drive they call it that, terminal, that's done by consuming natural gas, and that's where the emissions come from. You essentially consume some of the product to create the LNG. Uh, If you go to all electrical drive in a province like British Columbia, where virtually all the electricity comes from hydro, you get a much balanced sheet on emissions. And the New Democrats have promised LNG Canada relief from the carbon tax providing they are the cleanest LNG terminal in the world. 
at the moment, they're doing fine in North America because they're building electrical drive terminals in Texas, but they haven't come online yet. But if they get their next-door neighbor in Kitimat is electrical drive and therefore largely emissions-free, I don't know if LNG Canada will continue to qualify for that relief from the carbon tax. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, final word to you, Shannon. I mean, uh, Keith says that even an e-drive LNG project uh, isn't going to win over the Greens, but I mean, if you have an electric driven project that actually needs more wind and solar and things that kind of go into their bailiwick, uh, would it be harder for them to oppose a project like that or no? I think that's a very interesting question. I'm I'm very interested in, in this e-drive technology and seeing what it does. As Vaughn pointed out, with these incentives around the carbon tax, the government has said, you know, best in the world facilities will get a break um, above a certain threshold. There's also been some suggestion that there might be some kind of reduced reduction or incentive around, you know, best in class or best in region or something like that. So it could have some very interesting implications for the way the industry plays out here in the province. I don't really see, though, the Greens suddenly deciding that just because we can have the greenest LNG in the world, it's going to be something that they can actually get on board with. All right, let's take a quick break here and more with Keith, Vaughn, and Shannon right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, turning our attention to the province next door because there was a, a Vancouver uh, area interview with on CKNW with Charles Adler uh, that really caused some waves uh, from coast to coast uh, between Charles Adler and Jason Kenney prior to last night's Alberta leadership debate. Um, Vaughn, to you, uh, incredibly damaging to Jason Kenney. What was your thought in the interview and then say his subsequent performance in the debate if you saw it? Well, let me start off and say that Charles Adler is remarkable as a broadcaster. Uh, I, for 20 years, did live interviews on television, and I've never heard an interview quite as sharp as that. Uh, no disrespect to any other broadcasters that are listening, but uh, I was impressed with how he didn't let Kenny get away with anything, his level of research, and yet respectful and polite, right? There was no shouting, there was no yelling, it gave Kenny plenty of time to answer. Um, the only thing I would say about it all, other than that, and I didn't watch the TV debate, so I don't know how that went, but my thought was, you know, um, there's a lot of people who weren't going to vote for Jason Kenney anyway who were going to think this was damaging, but I sort of wonder if Kenney's own supporters are going to go, yeah, well, that's sort of okay because we're going to vote our concerns about the economy and we don't like the NDP. Yeah, and that's that's really the crux of it. But um, it was riveting radio. It was the way talk radio should be. It was an unbelievable interview. Keith, uh, to, to Vaughn's question, though, does it have an impact? Would you think that people in Alberta who are listening who may have gone, Kenny said, oof, not comfortable with that anymore, or is it status quo? Well, I think public opinion in Alberta is pretty rigid. Um, doesn't really break uh, over any issues. I listened to the to the uh, interview. In fact, I I tweeted that uh, I ended up driving around my neighborhood for about an extra ten or fifteen minutes because I wanted to hear the whole thing rather than park my car and go in my house. And it was uh, it was he was certainly calling out Kenny and confronting him with the fact again that he he tolerates candidates who have intolerant views on a number of things, including uh, gay rights and 
uh, all aspects of uh, of in- intolerance. But uh, then I watched the debate last night. I watched the second half of the debate last night, Alberta leaders' debate. I have to say, Kennedy performed quite well in that debate. I don't yeah. think Rachel Notley was uh, setting anything on fire there. She didn't look particularly well. I don't think the debate uh, moved the numbers. I don't think that radio interview is well as great a job as Charles did. I don't think it really shifted public opinion. I would suspect if a poll was taken today in Alberta, it would show, again, that Jason Kennedy and his United Conservatives would have a significant lead over Rachel Notley and the NDP. I mean, there's a bit of desperation about Notley's campaign right now. Uh, They're strong in Edmonton, uh, but they're nowhere in rural Alberta, and they're fighting for their lives in the suburbs of Calgary. And if if they can't win Calgary, they're just going to be a very small uh, opposition party. If they can win the suburbs of Calgary, they've got a fighting chance against Kenny, but I think right now she's pushing a pretty big boulder up a very steep hill. Yeah, um, but part of the part of the equation, and, I, and it's not just Alberta, we're seeing it playing out in, in other jurisdictions and nationally, and I suspect it'll play a role in our coming federal election. Um, political leaders, to a large degree, I, I don't think, are, are, are taking a hard enough stance on some of the stuff that we're seeing out there. Uh, and to that point, I mean, Jason Kenney, in that Charles Adams learned to be was really roasted for not really expressing a strong stand uh, on LGBTQ rights and the candidates that under his tent have said and done some crazy crazy stuff uh, Shannon do we need leadership out there that that says okay I'm a conservative I'm a liberal I'm an NDP I'm a whatever and that's fine but I will not tolerate this stuff anymore would be nice to see, but I don't think it's going to come from Jason Kenney and the UCP, certainly not in this coming election. Um, I feel similarly to Keith and Vaughn. I don't, I, I really enjoyed um, Charles Adler's interview. I found it very satisfying, some of the questions he asked and, and the way he kind of didn't let Kenny off the hook. But I also didn't find Kenny's answers very satisfying. Um, he to me, he 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 refuses to kind of genuinely apologize or take any kind of responsibility for some of the things, not only that his candidates have said and done that a lot of people find offensive and and I think are problematic to be seeing in our mainstream political discourse, um, but he doesn't take responsibility for his own you know, his own beliefs that he has espoused previously. He says he rejects them now, but he hasn't apologized for the impact that they have had on people's lives. Unfortunately, I don't think the majority of people who, you know, are leaning towards the UCP or who are planning to vote for the UCP, having seen everything that they've seen so far with, I think it's we're up to two dozen candidates now that have said, all kinds of crazy things up to, you know, sort of really troubling on sort of the hateful scale um, things. But people are still planning to vote for the UCP. So I just, if you haven't decided by now that Jason Kenney and the UCP are a problem for these views, for the fact that they haven't effectively weeded them out, I don't think either the interview or the recent leaders debate is going to change your mind on that. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because I think there's some really ugly things that are gaining a foothold that really, really shouldn't. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour and we'll continue our conversation with Shannon Waters, Keith Paltry, and Vaughn Palmer right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. 
Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Shannon Waters, Keith Baldry, and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, Shannon, uh, first to you on this segment. Uh, late last week, the uh, right to bear arms controversy flared up. Uh, we all saw how that developed, and holy smokes. I mean, the legislature sometimes is very, 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 very slow to act, and then occasionally uh, things happen and, and things move very rapidly. But I've not seen a turnaround like that. From Friday's explosion and uh, viral stuff going all over the place and, and the great stand that you and, and your uh, your fellow colleagues at the legislature took, and first thing Monday morning, a voila change. Have you seen anything like it? No, and I don't think we were expecting anything like it. There was sort of a brief fleeting thought through my brain when I saw the memo from the Speaker's office that maybe it was an April Fool's joke because I was thinking, like, maybe we'd get some kind of response before the end of the session in May. Um I will say I think it's a very positive start. Um, you know, the recommendations from acting clerk Kate Ryan Lloyd saying that everybody who works in the legislature is capable of choosing appropriate professional attire for themselves. There's no need to police these rules in the hallway. That seems very sensible to me. Um, yeah, it's it's been kind of overwhelming. Um, my social media has been insane uh, for the past week. The response has been mostly overwhelmingly supportive and positive. Um, there, you know, have been some people who are calling into question my professionalism and intelligence based on the color of my hair, which I find kind of ridiculous. But over oh, on the whole, I think it's been the reaction has been positive. I think the initial um, recommendations are positive, and I'm very hopeful for the results of this review. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like it since David Shrek made that uh, ill-advised comment about uh, former Premier Christy Clark's neckline. But, oh, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully this dress code thing uh, is finally resolved and we can see some momentum on that side. Uh, I do want to move on to some other stuff. We're getting an announcement right now, actually, uh, from uh, Rob Fleming. And uh, they're moving now on uh, the ability to offer free-of-charge menstrual products for students in school washrooms by the end of yes. 2019. So, Shannon, I assume that's welcome news. <laughs> I think it's long overdue, um, as was pointed out in the chamber during question period a couple of weeks ago now, Andrew Weaver was asking um, Social Development and Poverty Reduction Minister Shane Simpson, like, why don't we have, he was asking about the poverty reduction strategy and saying, you know, why don't we have free menstrual products in schools right now? And is this something that the poverty reduction plan might offer? And Simpson turned around and said, you know, when you walk into a public washroom, you expect there to be toilet paper and you expect it to be free. Why we don't have um, menstrual products in the same category, I think is a very good question. And I think that if men menstruated, that we wouldn't be asking it right now. And that was, to me, just a really amazing exchange to hear. So I'm very glad that the province has decided to make sure that, you know, pe uh, people who have periods who are in schools can get the um, the products that they need without having to worry about whether or not they have a quarter. Yes, I'm old enough to remember when you were still putting quarters. I think it was actually like 75 cents to be able to buy a tampon. Yeah. Um, or not have to go to like the principal's office and request one, which, you know, as say like a 13 or 14 year old girl in high school would just be absolutely mortifying. So I think it's very good news. I think it's long overdue. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that that is what this morning's announcement was about. Excellent. Uh, let's move on to some other topics. Uh, Keith ICBC 
Uh, we talked a lot about that last week. Monday morning, trial lawyers launching their their legal challenge of the changes that uh, Attorney General Dave Eby rolled out. Uh, former Premier Ujjal Dosanjh taking point on that, which resulted in, the, in a, an interesting back and forth between him and the current Attorney General. Uh, what's your read on the situation after some time to kind of uh, let it all settle in? Well, you know, it's interesting. The trial lawyers are, are mounting uh, what they consider to be a constitutional argument, and that they think the constitutional rights of, of accident victims are being trounced here by putting a, a cap on how much, uh, the, how big the payout can be for for minor injuries. That uh, this uh, means justice is going to be denied them. It's an interesting argument. Uh, as for the Mr. Desange, I mean, you got to know the history here. Uh, just, first of all, Desange's son, I think, is a injury. Uh, uh, lawyer. Both of them. Also, also um, there is major bad blood between the Sanchez and the BC NDP that goes back decades. Uh, they they broke with him when he broke with them to go with the federal liberals. So uh, I wouldn't put too much into what uh, uh, Mr. Sanchez has to say on this in terms of any impact on David Eby and the NDP government. But it's an interesting legal argument that the trial lawyers are mounting, and uh, they're not going to back off on this. I mean, they're literally their livelihoods are at stake here. Uh, this is a major show between them and the NDP. This would have happened in the 19... Well, it did happen in the 1990s when the NDP was looking to move to no-fault insurance, and uh, they were forced to back off because of a, a huge uh, pushback by the trial lawyers and by the disabilities um, uh, uh, associations who were also pushing back on this. Interestingly enough, in this case, the disability uh, uh, in- interests are not part of this, and that's because the major payout, the payouts for major injuries have actually been increased uh, under the new scheme. So uh, I'm not sure the trial order is going to succeed, but it's uh, it's another fight that EB says is necessary to fix ICBC. Well, that's the question to you then, Vaughn. I mean, EB says this, as, as Keith just said, is necessary. He told me this week they have absolutely no choice. They have no choice here whatsoever. Uh, does that hold water? Well, uh, I did a piece in the paper this week pointing out how EB has been making this up as he goes along. A number of times he's already changed his position, had to clarify his position, have to basically come out and say no, that he, David Eby, by himself, uh, as minister of ICBC, changed the court rules without proper consultation with the chief justice or the committee of lawyers and judges that sets the rules for Supreme Court. Uh, EB had come out and admit that, yeah, I, did, I mean, this. EB has two hats, right? He's the minister in charge of squaring up the books at ICBC, but he's also the minister who gets to write the court rules. And what it's what he's doing is changing the rights and the way of people to operate in court in order to make the books look good at ICBC. So I think the trial lawyers actually have a case. I don't know if they'll win, but I think they have considerable potential to embarrass EB on this issue. And I'm not sure the judges are going to necessarily side with EB running roughshod over people's rights uh, in accident cases. ICBC is a big octopus, a very powerful provincial corporation. It has been known to bully accident victims in the past, and I'm not sure the judge's sympathy is going to be with ICBC and David Eby. I think it may well be with accident victims. 
The crux of this, Shannon, is this promise. Uh, we're all aware of the fiscal uh, dumpster fire ICBC finds itself in. These changes are, are supposed to trim a billion dollars a year. Uh, they're pretty extreme changes. Uh, we don't know yet if, if that's going to bear out in reality. Uh, if it does not, I mean, is time running out here on, on the provincial government's approach to ICBC? Is it time to get desperate if that promise does not bear fruit on the fiscal side? Well, it's certainly getting to the point, I think, where people want to see... They want to see results, especially, you know, we just had um, the scheduled increase to insurance premiums kick in at the beginning of this month. There's a bunch more changes coming in September, which, you know, um, could result in some rebates for people who are who don't drive very much or who are very safe drivers, but issues for others. Um, I appreciate the scale of what the government is trying to do. Here, I mean, we've had billions of dollars in losses um, from ICBC in just the past two fiscal years. That's a lot of money, and that's a lot of, I would argue, sort of momentum to kind of turn around and get things back in the black. Now, when we were looking at the budget um, that was introduced um, in February, the government it seems quite confident. They think that ICBC is not only going to be, they're going to recover, but it will be profitable uh, within the next few years. So they do seem to be betting hard on these changes. When it comes to um, to the minor injury claims and, and the changes that they're making there, I just want to point out that there is a clause as part of the legislation where if you're classified as a minor injury, but your symptoms persist past a year, um, and I'm not sure that there's anybody who's ever been involved in an accident involving an injury in BC who has had their case with ICBC resolved in less than a year. Um, if your symptoms are still per- persisting past one year, that sort of mixes the minor injury classification and you go back into mm. the system somehow and get reevaluated. Now, I think there's potentially two implications there. One, that if you are mistakenly classified as having a minor injury and it's negatively impacting your life a year later, um, you do have the ability to, you know, have your sort of status changed, which is, is could be good. You know, it's a backstop in case... Um, in case things end up being more serious than they were originally thought to be. But the other issue is, are we going to see, you know, claims where people are saying that things are still an issue or have been evaluated as still having issues related to an accident and how valid those are necessarily going to be. So I think, I think Vaughn's uh, description of the octopus is, is, is an accurate one, both for ICBC and for the way the government is sort of trying to change all these various aspects of how the corporation works all at once in a bid to right the ship. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I do want to kind of shoehorn this in right at the end of the show. Uh, conflict of interest, uh, Commissioner Paul Fraser uh, dying last Friday after a brief illness uh, rattled the legislature. Just a brief word from the three of you on, uh, on Mr. Fraser's passing and his legacy. Keith? Great guy. I had so much respect and time for Paul. His office was right below me in my my office and Bond's office, so I constantly would chat with him and literally right outside our door in the parking lot. Um, he had a great love for politics. Uh, he loved the uh, he just loved the big picture of politics. We never talked about ever about conflict of interest with members. He just liked to talk about the the bigger the bigger plan, the bigger scheme of things, and which way stories would go. And uh, he was. Uh, uh, no, he's just a really warm, generous, uh, kind man, and I was shocked when I found out just a few weeks ago he was in hospital, and uh, he uh, passed quite quickly, and I think we're all the poorer for it. Vaughn? 
Yeah, uh, MLAs were shocked. Uh, many of them didn't even know he was in hospital. I think Andrew Weaver learned that, that Paul had passed, uh, hearing Andrew Wilkinson and John Horgan deliver the tributes in the House. I had a nice note from former MLA Vicki Huntington, uh, who was an independent, and she said as an independent MLA, people have to realize what an incredible support Fraser was, because she, uh, she did the whole term all by herself, even before Weaver came along. And she said he was just, uh, he, she could go talk to him about anything. He gave her really good advice, all in confidence. And uh, the respect that, that Fraser had from all parties in the House, you know, appointed unanimously three terms as conflict commissioner. Uh, that itself is a testimonial to how much he will be missed. Uh, they're going to uh, look around for the, the cabinet uh, um, can appoint an interim commissioner, but in the long run, it'll be a committee of the legislature that'll have to go out and recruit another commissioner, and it's a tough job to fill and a big pair of shoes to fill. Final word to you, Shannon. I didn't have a lot of interactions with Mr. Fraser, but just seeing the depth of feeling in the legislature this week and the eloquent and often emotional tributes from MLAs from all parties, um, I think speaks to to the work he did and to his sterling reputation here in the province. And our condolences to the Fraser family as well. Uh, guys, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Great show. All right, bye-bye. Thank you. There's Keith Baldry, Shannon Waters, and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, Todd Stone, Peter Millibar, both in studio next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to have both the Kamloops MLAs in studio. Kamloops North's Peter Millibar, Kamloops South's Todd Stone. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Yeah, it was a good time. I assume you just got back to Victoria like, what, uh, 20 minutes ago? Uh, about half an hour ago. <laughs> well, we're halfway through the session, though. It's hard, it's hard to believe. When does the session end again? Uh, the end of May. Okay, it's getting yeah. close. Um, why don't we pick up on the land titles thing? Because we've had some developments there, and I know you guys had a chance in estimates to uh, uh, go back and forth with Minister Doug Donaldson. Uh, my understanding is the land titles office has... Uh, either reached out or is attempting to reach out to some of the parties. But um, from what I know, uh, city council-wise, it's a letter offering to answer questions. Uh, but that said, April 3rd, so this Wednesday of this week, uh, they splashed on their website, okay, here's the Kamloops office thing. Suddenly we're all being transparent about six months after the decision is made. Uh, so first to you, Todd, is, is a consultation a question and answer period or is a consultation holding the decision and saying, okay, we're reevaluating pending whatever we hear from whomever? Well, uh, this land titles uh, file is a complete and total mess. Uh, that's what we've learned uh, this week. Uh, Doug Donaldson, the minister, Connie Fair, who's the president and CEO, uh, the board of the land title, these people all need to, to come to Kamloops, and they need to sit down with city council, they need to sit down with the TNRD, they need to sit down with uh, with First Nations chiefs, uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, crazy idea, sit down with the, with the people who actually work in the land titles office and, and, and meet with the private uh, registry agents uh, who work uh, on, on, on land titles in this community and have a conversation. Uh, we went through uh, an hour and a half of a pretty intense questioning and back and forth with uh, with 
Doug Donaldson, the minister responsible this week, yeah. as you said. Uh, and, uh, you know, a few in, enlightening uh, developments. One, he refused to acknowledge that uh, there is any requirement uh, for uh, engagement and consultation with, uh, with First Nations. Uh, I, I can imagine there are a whole bunch of chiefs out there who uh, might be interested to, 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 to learn that. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, uh, he refused to uh, direct uh, the, uh, the land titles uh, office, uh, the, 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 the uh, Connie Fair in particular, who's the CEO, to, uh, to halt this decision pending uh, engagement and consultation with all of the affected uh, parties. And, uh, and thirdly, most astoundingly, uh, it, it literally, uh, I, I think as, as we, uh, P- Pete and I were walking out of the committee room after grilling the minister, uh, they seem to then uh, take it upon themselves at the land title office to post uh, a confirmation on their website that notwithstanding all of the concerns that have been raised and the, the pleas for, for engagement, uh, we're, we're, we're moving ahead anyway. Yeah. And uh, we've, uh, uh, while we, we have documentation that indicates that the packing of these documents and the move of these documents wasn't supposed to start until the end of 2019, early 2020, uh, we're now uh, told that a contractor has been hired, movers are hired, and uh, this work is going to, uh, to start next week. So uh, they have, they've actually doubled down on this, uh, which I think shows a, 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 an immense amount of disrespect uh, for the community uh, here, and, uh, and in particular for the First Nations chiefs who made it very clear last week uh, they expect uh, a consultation on this matter before it actually happens. Yeah, well, we can if that's true, then we can throw consultation out the window then, right, Pete? Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's the key to all of this. Uh, the minister confirmed that the province does actually own the records, um, it was it was almost laughable as he's admonishing Todd and myself for for fear mongering for simply asking questions and, and conveying what we're hearing in the community, um, and saying he has absolutely no responsibility. I ask him to to interview the staff that are behind him, and not only does he have deputy ministers sitting behind him, um, but he has uh, Connie Fair sitting behind him in estimates, um, who magically just shows up to land titles office that day or to uh, the the legislature that day, I guess, to answer questions about land titles in case they come up, sitting waiting for the minister. The minister didn't know we were coming in to ask questions that day, so why would she be there if he doesn't have any clout or control to <laughs> say, hey, I need you here to be able to answer these questions? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's time for the province to do the right thing, put the brakes on this, uh, get proper consultation going, uh, to brush this off and say, uh, you know, the, the copies will do, is just not accurate. And, and the minister should know that. Certainly Connie Fair should know that. You talk to anyone that deals with these documents, nine times out of ten when they get the electronic record, they need to follow up by looking at the original. Um, there's lots of detailed notations that go back 100, 150 years, handwritten on these things. They're on the front and on the back, or there's, there's uh, you know, uh, different directional type notations made from way back in the day. Uh, as that pertains to First Nations, it's critically important as they're working through their land titles issues and, and uh, areas uh, that they have the originals to work with. Um, they, they should not have to travel down to Victoria and back all the time. And uh, in a lot of files, there's actually a legal duty uh, to have been able to have handled the, the original uh, document before there's a sign-off, uh, either by the, the lawyer themselves or, or by an agent working for the, the, the lawyer. So for, for the head of land titles and the minister to keep saying, there's no worry, there's no concern, there's going to be no uh, change of service, why is it that everyone that works in this service uh, says the exact opposite to a person? Yeah. Um, and they're all saying the exact same thing to Todd and I, no matter what part of the spectrum they're working in this file on. Um, 
we have to take their word for it. Uh, and frankly, they're a lot more trustworthy and, and forthright on this file right now than the minister's been. <laughs> okay, a couple quick questions on this. And one of them is, uh, this office is built as independent. Doug Donaldson has kind of distanced himself from this the entire time. Uh, however, on Friday, he told me, okay, I've, I've reached out, uh, my staff have reached out to ensure that consultations will be done. So, so Todd, does he have any muscle here to do anything, or is it completely out of his control like he'd have us believe? Because it seems to me he has some clout. Yeah, he absolutely has uh, clout here. He is the minister responsible. The the, uh, uh, the, the Land Title and Survey Authority uh, is established under the purview of the Land Title Act. Uh, Donaldson is the minister responsible for that act. Furthermore, there's an operating agreement that was signed between uh, the province of British Columbia and the Land Title and Survey Authority that uh, retains ownership of, uh, of these critical land title documents uh, by the province and further uh, provides for uh, the, uh, the, the province to set standards uh, around how these uh, these documents will be managed. Uh, this is no different than uh, than BC Ferries. Uh, this is no different than TransLink. Uh, you know, these yeah. are those are a couple big organizations that are uh, quote unquote arm's length from government. Uh, I was responsible for them. I I, I remember four years worth of estimates uh, as a minister uh, answering hours of questions from uh, NDP opposition MLAs about TransLink and BC Ferries. And by the way, uh, if if anyone were to ever suggest to BC Ferries, well, you don't have to uh, consult with First Nations uh, on, on decisions that you make. Uh, uh, people would, would laugh you out of the out of the building. <laughs> so yes, Donaldson does have clout here. There is no reason uh, that Connie Fair, the CEO of the Land Title and Survey Authority, would have been sitting right behind him for hours while we were asking questions uh, in in the legislature earlier this week. If uh, there wasn't a relationship uh, between the province and the Land Title and Survey Authority, so for Donaldson to um, uh, to hear loud and clear from chiefs, as you're well aware, last week that uh, they want this decision halted, they don't want the documents to leave Kamloops, and they want the province to to, to sit down with them to talk about this. Uh, Donaldson to then say, yeah, I'll make sure that that happens. And he said that you know, right on your show. Uh, and, and then we find out uh, that the, the, the move is actually being accelerated. Yeah. You know, it's quite an affront uh, to uh, to the people of Kamloops and, and to First Nations. Uh, and as I said at the outset, this, this is a complete and total mess. Um, don't forget that there's about two dozen people involved here too that have jobs in Kamloops about half that work yeah. in the office for the the LTSA and half that are private uh, I'm actually agents. Hearing, I'm hearing it's larger than that now it, it very well could be um, but so we're talking dozens of jobs uh, that will be impacted uh, here in Kamloops and and uh, yeah that's we, we've got to just continue to, 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 to push hard uh, mm-hmm. and hopefully get the government to reverse this decision but and, and one other point about yeah. not, the minister saying doesn't have uh, sway or clout part of, part of the whole act and part of the the operation agreement is that um, land titles needs to, uh, by by rule, inform the minister of changes like this. Uh, Todd pressed the minister on this, and the minister acknowledged that they, in fact, told him in October of 2018 they were doing this, and he didn't, yeah. and no one in his office thought that, hmm, have you actually consulted with First Nations on this? So for six months, they've sat back and done absolutely nothing. And for the minister to say he has no responsibility, why would they have to inform him of any potential change like this if he has no responsibility or oversight uh, uh, with I, his organization? Uh, I, yeah, and I, I would add one final thing, too. I, I 
think that it's critical uh, for the city of Kamloops. Uh, they passed a resolution unanimously. That's, that's the great. TNRD. Uh, and the TNRD, I think the mayor and council uh, need to, to say a letter uh, responding to questions is ridiculous. We expect a face-to-face meeting, uh, number one. And number two, I don't think we've heard the last from First Nations chiefs. Uh, I, I, I have, uh, you know, as recent as last night, uh, talking to a couple of them again. Um, they're very, very concerned uh, that in the context of their land title, uh, uh, the land title process uh, that they're engaged with government, uh, having access to those those uh, those original records, knowing that they're not going to be uh, damaged in any way, they're not going to get lost uh, in a in a in a move, uh, that they will still have uh, you know quick and and um, and efficient access to those original records is is fundamental to their to, to the confidence that they have in in the land title uh, process. So yeah. uh, we have not heard the last from the chiefs either on this, uh, and uh, I think if we continue to work hard and push push back on this we we uh, will hopefully uh we'll have donaldson and and it might even take the premier uh, weighing in uh, on this um mm. in the context of the the new relationship that they're trying to forge with uh with first nations and uh, their commitment to uh to uh, the united nations uh, declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples uh quick last question on this topic to you pete because you asked an interesting question in estimates uh and i want to get your sense of what the answer was you asked doug donaldson outright who owns the records whether it's the land titles office or the province his answer was a, a little roundabout. I took it to mean that the government owns the records. What was your take on his response? That, that was my take, and I followed up with essentially saying, oh, it's good the, the ministers acknowledge that uh, uh, the province still owns the records and that the, the land titles authority doesn't have the right to just dispose of them or get rid of them or do whatever they want with them. Um, and, and he never countered back that, and normally a minister would. If, if they feel that you've mischaracterized their answer or summarized it wrong, they instantly, especially on something as fundamental as who owns uh, historical documents, um, would be correcting me. And, and the minister didn't. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that the province owns the, the records. And that stands uh, any test and, and makes total logical sense. Yeah. So for the minister to say that is ridiculous. For, for them to cling to there's no job loss, we're fear-mongering because all they were looking at is, is the governmental component uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, frankly, uh, speaks to to the idea that uh, government knows best and, and big governments even better. Uh, if that's the only type of job the minister seems to think is is of any value in the Kamloops area, um, and and so I think we need to keep pushing on this. I was glad to to see the mayor's comments uh, on NL's web page yesterday. Um, you know, because this is something critical, and it's it's. You know, let's let's follow this up. We're we're being accused of fear mongering by the minister because we didn't try working with him. Well, he knew for six months, didn't inform us. Yeah, didn't we, inform anybody in the we community. We catch wind and and rumors and and yeah. people worried. Uh, you know, according to him, we have the temerity to raise this, and it took weeks for them to even acknowledge uh, that there was even something going on in that building. Yeah, um, and <laughs> backdrop that with this is all taking place two three weeks after we did we heard the exact same concerns about BC lotteries and their project being killed, um, with two and a half weeks of silence coming out of uh, Minister Eby, and then magically uh, we get the announcement that uh, BC lotteries uh, is in fact uh, been scrubbed and cancelled and two hundred and fifty jobs that come with it are no longer coming to Kamloops. So, um, you know, I think we have uh, the, the basis to have that skepticism, and these ministers can solve this very quickly by not going radio silent for two, three weeks at a time uh, when we're hearing concerns in the community, and instead of uh, acting with uh, contempt towards us that we're daring to raise issues that we're hearing from our constituents, yeah. they can actually deal with them in a timely way. Yeah. Just checking, are either of you two the new BC Conservative Party leader? <laughs> <laughs> 
No. <laughs> That'd be a hard no. <laughs> Just check it. Uh, are, All they right. still, are they still looking for a leader? No, they're announcing a leader Monday morning. Oh, Monday morning. Oh, oh well, yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right, uh, Pete Todd, thanks, guys. Thank thanks, you. Shane. And that brings to an end this edition of Inside Politics on Radio NL. My thanks to my guests today, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, Shannon Waters, Todd Stone, and Peter Millibar. We'll see you again on NL next Friday. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM. Local news now.